Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session, How Fiction Can Foster Empathy, with Trent Dalton, Matt Haig and Elise Valmobida, in conversation with Nicole Abadie, recorded live at the 2018 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Hello. Good morning. Welcome to Byron's Bay Writers' Festival 2018. Um, I'm delighted to welcome you here to this wonderfully named session, How Fiction Can Foster Empathy. What a lovely title that is, and I'm so looking forward to talking to these three fabulous writers about that. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Arakwal people of the Bunjurong Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respect to their elders past and present. And I'd like to introduce you to our three wonderful authors. First, we have Trent Dalton. Trent is a leading journalist who will probably be known to a lot of you. He writes for the Weekend Australian magazine and he's won quite a few Walkley Awards. He's also a screenwriter and a filmmaker and now he's an author as well. His debut novel, Boy Swallows Universe, which we'll be talking about today, has received absolutely stunning reviews since its release a few months ago. Thank you. <laughs> big hug, big, cu- big hug coming for you. You better watch out. <laughs> um, it's now been sold in almost 24 territories, so that's a fantastic achievement. And uh, Trent grew up wondering if you could be good and bad at once, and that's something that um, he considers in his book. Our next writer is Matt Haig. He is a best-selling and award-winning author of children's books, novels and Uh, his memoir, which many of you may know, called Reasons to Stay Alive. His latest novel, the one we'll be talking about today, is How to Stop Time, which is being made into a movie produced by and starring Benedict Cumberbatch. Whoa. (laughs) How good's that? Whoa. How good is that? (laughs) One of the things that really annoys him is a lack of empathy, and one of the things he loves is peanut butter and Marmite sandwiches. Go figure. Controversial. The third writer that we have here this morning is Elise Valmorbida. She grew up Italian in Australia but fell in love with London and moved there where she's been writing and teaching creative writing for over 20 years. Elise has written a number of books and has produced a feature film as well. Her latest book, The Madonna of the Mountains, the one we're going to be talking about, has been a Times Book of the Month and the qualities that she admires most are intelligence and empathy. So please make our three writers feel very welcome. So what is it that we think about when we speak of empathy? The best definition that I found was the ability to share someone else's feelings or experiences by imagining what it would be like to be in that person's situation. Many writers have spoken about the fact that the very best fiction creates empathy and In fact, George Eliot even described this as being the main purpose of her writing. She said, The only effect I ardently long to produce by my writings is that those who read them should be better able to imagine and to feel the pains and the joys of those who differ from them, which I thought was a very lovely description. We're going to to move to talk about that a little bit. It's not just writers that are saying this. There have been scientific studies as well. One done a few years ago found that people who read Harry Potter books... um, or that reading Harry Potter books reduces racism and prejudice. So with all of that in mind, let's speak with these three wonderful writers about what they think of this idea of whether or not fiction fosters empathy. 
I'll start with some questions to all of you, and then I'm going to ask each of you some questions about your specific book, and we're very lucky that each of the writers has agreed to do a short reading for us, um, which is fantastic. So my first question is, what do you all think about this idea? Do you believe that good fiction does enable readers to become more empathetic and more understanding of other people? Trent, let's start with you. Oh, thank you. I'm, you're so, this is so great. And I just want to say, look at all you amazing people. I just This is <laughs> flipping me out. It's um, <laughs> kid from the outer west of Brisbane doesn't belong here, so thank you so much. Um, and to be with Nicole, it's really great. Um, empathy is everything I have ever done as a journalist. It's... Um, it is the thing that made me, it, it put me on this stage. I swear to God, empathy is the most important characteristic in, um, the most important weapon in a feature writer's toolkit is empathy. And, um, and if you can go into a living room and, um, and, and listen to someone tell their life story for four hours and empathise um, and then, then transfer that onto a ma into a magazine piece, you're doing your job properly and respectfully and you're... It's the best thing that you can do. Um, and what about in your fiction? And then in fiction, so all I ever did with my fiction, with this debut novel, was try to show Australians, get them to empathise about three people who I grew up with. Um, one, a heroin dealer who went away for 10 years in Bogger Road Prison. Another, the most loving, loyal, beautiful warrior mum who survived the worst things life could throw at you, but on paper people might have at times said she's not a great mum. And thirdly, um, an old man who was a, a drunk and um, a guy who uh, raised four boys on his own, but um, I love like nothing else in this world. So, you know, all I, ever, all I wanted to do in my book was um, for readers to go, yeah, I can empathise with those three people and see why that kid loves them so much. Matt? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think empathy uh, can be fostered through books. I feel that, uh, um, you know, I, what I write about a lot in fiction and nonfiction is mental health stuff and mental illness. And I've seen firsthand people who don't necessarily have direct experience of depression or anxiety or something like that, but they know someone close to them, a partner, um, a child or something. Uh, and they've read a book about um, mental illness and or a character with mental illness, and they they suddenly have an understanding of an invisible thing, something that I haven't seen and maybe have felt a bit of stigma towards. And, and I've seen that with my own eyes, and I I definitely believe just in my own sort of reading experience, um, fiction helps you a empathise with other people, people who aren't like you. And you know, one thing I I kind of resist sometimes about contemporary. Um, book culture is this idea that we have to necessarily like the central character. You know, often empathy isn't necessarily the same as liking someone. It's just understanding. You know, empathy isn't sympathy. So I, I think one of the jobs of fiction is to actually transplant us into someone we possibly wouldn't like in the real world or be friends with in the real world, but to actually get an understanding of that. And I think that's why books beyond the internet, beyond sort of anything else. Books can give us that space, you know, that universal space where we can empathise. Thank you. Elise? Where do you start? Such a huge, huge subject. And of course, yes, we all work in fiction. And fiction, I think, can only work if you are empathetic. It's no good saying, here's an evil character and there they are, full stop, 100% bad. They're not going to be interesting at all. 
you need to get into that character's shoes and see the world from their point of view and help a reader see the world from their point of view. And that, to me, is one of the most exciting, brain-changing experiences about being a writer, but also about being a reader, that you can actually um, be taken into someone else's world, someone else's culture, someone else's place, and see the world from their point of view. So, you know, that wonderful experience, even when you, have a, when you watch a film that takes you to another place, another time, another culture, and you feel like you're inside, um, that, to me, is when my brain feels like it's growing, and I'm learning, and I'm becoming more human. And it's also a way of um, uh, taking the sting out of something really unpleasant or a person that's unpleasant. A creative writing exercise I set students often is to write about someone that they hate and they will write about it you know, with great, with great um, enthusiasm. And then I ask them to write about exactly the same person with love. And it's quite extraordinary because to do that, they have to get into that person's shoes and see the world from their point of view. And it's a really, really interesting experience. It really changes their way of viewing character, the world, their own experiences, their own interpretations. Do you think that it is, as George Eliot said, one of the actual purposes of fiction writing? Do you think that that, that is something that good fiction should aim for, specifically this idea that it should um, arouse empathy in readers? Elise, I'll start with you this time. Um, I'm always scared of the word purpose with fiction. I don't know why I write fiction. I still haven't got the answer to that one. But I guess at the end of it, yes, I suppose that's my experience when I read books, definitely. I love the fact that I can finish a book and feel like I know someone that I would otherwise have no idea of about. Um, yes, I think so, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's also about discovering via other people and other characters aspects of yourself too which is slightly different to empathy I suppose but it, it's about discovery so it's about discovery uh, and, and certainly as a writer you sort of like I, I feel that you know the cliche about writers and I suppose readers is that you're kind of antisocial introverted quiet bookish you know when you it's say true. someone is it's bookish true. <laughs> <laughs> but in a weird in a weird kind of way I feel like um books and reading books and writing books it, it, it's like the deepest level socializing you kind of like it's kind of like a telepathy you're, you're connecting with someone it might even be someone who's who's dead who died a hundred years ago you know so mm. it, you could be connecting with Emily Bronte or something but you're getting that kind of deep conversation through time from writer to reader and I feel like Books really, even beyond film, you know, they're the only things that really can do that because they come alive in your own mind and, and the reader has to do more of the work, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Trent? My, my response to that, I'll, I'll let a more interesting man than me kind of answer it and that's some um, huge name drop, the Dalai Lama. <laughs> I, um, I spent like four days in Brisbane sort of in, in the Dalai Lama's entourage once, right? And, uh, and at the end of it, I got this great sit down for an hour with his holiness and uh, and I just said, why am I here? And uh, this man's the most extraordinary man, right? And he pulls me in and he, he like pulls me in a whisper. He's like, come, Trent, closer, closer, closer. Really quiet. Like, he, knows, he knows the power of silence, right? He's like... And, and, and then he, he, I go, why am I here? And he says, you're, I meant, why are we humans here? You know, but he said, no, this is why you're here, this writer in front of me. I'm going to tell you why you, the writer, is here. And he said, you're here to speak to me and write about my story. And then he pointed at his bodyguard. He goes, you're, you're here to talk to him and write about his story. And he pointed out this woman who was setting up some lights in the corner of this room. He said, you're here to tell her story. And that way we get to understand every human being in our lives. And that guy is a true believer in that wonderful saying that it's hate 
it's hard to hate someone up close. Mm. That is like the greatest thing. Mm. And uh, that's what fiction writers do. Mm. They get close. And, uh, and that's, that's a wonderful thing. And you, you get close through empathy. Do any of you or can any of you think of any writers whose work you enjoy who do this particularly well, who write with great empathy and who, who you can talk about in that way? Um, well, I always go back to a book, and I don't know how well-known it is in Australia. And it's not that well-known in the UK, but it's quite well-known in America. Um, the Outsiders by S.E. Hinton. Mm-hmm. Oh, Pretty well-known here. Oh, oh, it is. Oh, it's more well-known here than the UK, I think, actually. Um, yeah, because it's not the best book in the world or anything, but it's the one that I read as a teenager. And I, I was having a bit of a bad time. I had a bad sort of few years after I changed school. And that that book... Um, understood the sort of teenage male mindset. And it's obviously written by a a woman, a teenage teenage woman. But, um, yeah, I feel like the best books can offer you that sort of comfort where, where, where A, the characters are so real, but also have that understanding of yourself. You know, when you don't feel understood, a book can empathize with you. Mm. You know know what I mean? It's a two-way thing. And, And so I always mention her it's not like my favorite book book to now to read as a grown-up person but at the time it, and it was also something actually when I because I had a sort of full-blown messy breakdown in my 20s so I, I went back to a lot of the books I'd read as a child for that sort of comfort and that was always mm. one of those mm. one of those ones Elise um well we've had the Dalai Lama I'm going to say Shakespeare sorry <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can't you win <laughs> <laughs> Plays, poems, you name it. Any Shakespearean experience for me has been absolutely brilliant in in encouraging me to feel empathetic. And my God, what a what a writer! You know, I think more and more studies of Shakespeare keep trying to find out who is the actual person Shakespeare, and no one can conclude who that person is. And I think it's almost that Zen idea of you know someone who is so nothing that they are everything. That's why they can be everyone, and he can represent all kinds of characters, all kinds of worlds, despite the limitation of his time and his you know, world and travel and all the rest of it, you think of the, the breadth of experience and vision that comes through that, that extraordinary writer. But he's no one and he's everyone, and I think that's like the ultimate in empathy. He's for Mona Lisa's smile of writers. For Mona Lisa's smile. <laughs> he's also um, a character in Matt's book. We'll come oh, yeah. to that later. Yeah. <laughs> Trent, right. what do you think? Are there any writers, that you, uh, fiction writers, yeah, that you think are particularly big, empathetic? Oh, for sure. Big guy in my life is John Steinbeck. Um, mm. You know, and, uh, and you know, Grapes of Wrath I've spoken at length about in the past, but um, the book where it really changed my life in many ways was Cannery Row. Um, you know, Cannery Row, like, it's just unbelievable. And you, you realise he's writing about all of these drunks and these guys in the flop houses and bars and... And I read that, and I went, "These are my old man's mates. These are like these are my my, my dad was a, a mud crabber. He's not with us anymore. He was a mud crabber. He he, he basically caught mud crabs on Bribie Island, and um, that's what he did. And uh, and I realised Steinbeck is writing about my dad and his friends, and his empathy for these people in Cannery Row is remarkable. And and suddenly I realised as a young man, like of about like early twenties, that hang on, I don't have to go interview Angelina Jolie or Brad Pitt. I can just go down the street and tell someone's story who's literally three houses up and living in a housing commission area of Brisbane and write the hell out of that. And, and that can be something beautiful. 
and uh, you know that was very powerful. That was Steinbeck who showed me that. And that's exactly what Trent has done in his book, which we'll be talking about. Yeah. Um, let's talk now. I would like to ask each of you a few questions about your novels. Each of them portray very strong lead characters in very challenging circumstances, and certainly I found each of the lead characters to be very relatable, to use that new trendy word, um, and they certainly did make me... I, I really did empathise with all of them and with their situations. So let's let's start to talk about the books now. I'm going to ask each reader to share with you a, 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 just a short reading so that you get the flavour of these wonderful books. So start. We'll, um, Trent, we'll start with you, if you could do. Please. Thanks, Nicole. Um, yeah, uh, I really want... I'll tell you a quick story. I'll try and keep it really brief. No, but um, take your time. Kind of keep this on the lowdown, if you don't mind. So just between you and me and, you know... <laughs> But um, I'll tell you about the best day of my life just quickly because it leads into this paragraph or this sort of couple page I'm about to read you. Best day of my life. Um, we're living in Northside Brisbane. Um, briefly, I've just sort of basically reacquainted myself with my, the birth father I never really got to know. And uh, he's um, basically in this sort of housing commission area. And my mum turns up in this yellow hatchback, right? And, uh, and it's this small car and, uh, and it's a rental and the front windscreen's all smashed in. And my mum says to Dad, Noel, um, I just want to take the boys for one night. Just give me one one night with them. And, uh, and Dad's like, yeah, I, I know you need this. You know, off you go. And we drive to the Gold Coast, right? And, uh, and on the way, we stop at Toy World. And, uh, and, and we hop out. We all pile out. I've got three older brothers. And, uh, and we all pile out of the car and we, we go to the the doors of Toy World, right? And mum says, you can have whatever you want. <laughs> Best day, right? Best day. And I'm like, this is amazing. And, uh, and, uh, and I go straight for the medieval knights Lego set, right? This giant box of medieval knights, like right in the heart of the 80s when a medieval knights Lego set is the best thing ever. Um, and that night we then go and drive to Jupiter's Casino. And uh, <laughs> Jupiter's Casino, yeah. And, uh, and, um, and we stay... We spend the night in like the accommodation, like the hotel attached, right? In this beautiful suite. And I just remember it vividly. We're on this um, huge king-size bed and the sheets are white and there's a white doona and like mum's in white. She looks literally like the flake ad lady. And, um, and she looks so beautiful. And I'm just playing Lego. My brothers are playing with their toys, Star Wars stuff. And we're just having the night of our lives. And the next morning... Mum drops us back at Dad's and she goes off to Boggo Road Women's Prison. And, um, and it's the worst day of my life. So what I'm about to read is every emotion that I had in that moment is in this page. So I just want to sort of give that some context. And it's, the setting is a kid looking through a glass panel of a, of a women's prison cell. He sees his mum on the other side of the door. I tap my knuckle gently on the glass panel. She doesn't hear. I knock hard and quick. She doesn't hear me. I slip off the door and I jump back on again. Mum, I whisper. I knock again. Knock twice, then three times. The last one, too loud, too hard. I look right up along the corridor. Laughter and applause still echo around the corner of B Block as the stars of when a child is born to hand drive. That's the women's uh, prison of putting, putting on a... Um, a, a Christmas kind of presentation show that's a mix of like the Christmas Carol and kind of um, Grease, the Grease Spectacular. 
They make their triumphant end show bows. Mum, I strain in a whisper. I knock louder. Two heavy bangs and she turns her head to me. Finds me looking frantically at her through the window. Mum, I whisper. I smile. And she lights up for a flicker. A light switches on inside her and switches off just as fast. Merry Christmas, Mum. And I'm crying now. And of course I'm crying now. I didn't know how much I needed to cry for her until now. Hanging by my fingers to the door of cell 24 and Boggo Road Women's Clink. Merry Christmas, Mum. I beam at her. See, Mum, see? After all this, after all these mad moments, after Lyle, after Slim, after you getting put away, it's still the same old me. Nothing changes, Mum. Nothing changes me. Nothing changes you. I love you more, Mum. You think I love you less, but I love you more because of it all. I love you. See? See that on my face. Mm. Thanks. Thanks. That's, that's that book. Yeah. Trent, you've given us a hint already, but tell us, tell us what your book is about and what prompted yeah. you to write it. It's, um, it's about this sort of crazy period in my life, um, you know, uh, between about the age of four and eight. I was this really profound period, and it was kind of brief, but it was, you know, it stayed with me. Basically, my mum fell in love with the wrong guy, and that guy was a um, really successful heroin dealer. And, um, and, and there were some bizarre things that sort of happened in the, the particular house we were growing up in. You know, um, we basically sort of would... We found a secret room in this house, which was this bloke sort of had built this secret room beneath his, his bedroom, and it was basically a safe room. And my brothers crept in there one day, and uh, and it was built out of like in, built into the earth, made of bricks, and and uh, and there was nothing in this room but a but a red telephone, and uh, and we were our minds were blown, and forevermore my imagination just went, what the <laughs> fuck is going on in this world? And uh, that was very inspiring to me, and it always has been. So then you know I'm 38, I'm 39 now. I was 38 when I started writing it, and um, and beautiful Catherine Milne from HarperCollins comes up to Brisbane and says. I've read your weekend Australian pieces. I think you've got a story in you. And so I go, yeah, there is all this crazy stuff from my past. And I just started to write a book and wrote a book about this boy named Eli Bell because there were things I couldn't write as a 39-year-old journo that I, it was too hard to write some of it. So this beautiful boy came into my life named Eli Bell who was much stronger and much more charismatic and much wiser than I am. And he told this story for me. And um, he wrote a story about a kid Growing up in a house full of drug dealers, the drug dealer gets taken away, vanishes mysteriously, the mum gets put in women's prison and the kid goes down into a secret room and there's a red telephone and, and he gets a mysterious phone call on that, on that phone that compels him, a message on that phone that says he must break into Boggo Road Women's Prison on Christmas Day to save his mum's life. And hmm. from there comes a story that brings in the universe and true love, um, fatherhood, parenthood, every aspect of the universe and um, and I just sort of soul coughed it all out of my heart and soul, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eli's mum is very much based on your own mum mm. and you've said that um, that she's the most interesting person you've ever met. Can you describe her to us? Oh, oh man, thank you for asking it like that. That's mm. so sweet because, like, you, you care about it. I love it when people read that book and they sort of – then it – prompts them to say something caring about her because that was my greatest fear is that someone would read it and wouldn't have empathy and that they'd read it and sort of judge her and so all these things get nervous. I get nervous at these things because I'm worried about how people... I was worried about writing it because I'd, 
the last thing I would want is that the world turns on my mom and says, you know, how, how could you do this? And, but when you read the book and you get her story, the empathy builds, you know, and I think that's what must happen. You have us all in tears before long, Trent. I don't oh, think oh, any, sorry, sorry, any no, lack sorry. of empathy. But, <laughs> but, you know, she is, you know, basically picture what she looks like now is picture Kylie Minogue at 68. It's like, and, um, you know, when she was a mum in me, she was Kylie Minogue, you know, and she was like just this. Or Debbie Harry, you said. Oh, or Debbie <laughs> Harry. Like, don't even get me started on Debbie Harry in the 80s. <laughs> and, um, and uh, but she is just this warrior who, you know, and if you go back and get the empathy side of it, you know, um, yeah, abandoned by her father when she was young, um, forced to raise a lot of her, her own sort of brothers, you know, wanted, had huge dreams, ran away from home, um, spent a bit of time in some bloody really hard places and, uh, you know, at 16, hitchhikes to Brisbane, my old man picks her up hitchhiking on the way to Brisbane on the Bruce Highway and uh, that's how I'm born and... Um, you know, a million different things could have spiralled out. And then, uh, yeah, she, um, you know, my old man messes up with the love of his life, screws that up. He, he's cursed by that for the next 20 years. Um, and then for the next 20 years, mum seems to attract every asshole in Queensland. And, um, and, uh, and she's over that now. And she's just this beautiful grandmother. And this stuff of this book is just a completely different universe. And, uh, but... In that book, she's the total hero of the story. She's an absolute hero. And, um, you know, I wanted to write something like that about all those women that we all know. I bet you you guys know women just like that. You know? <laughs> oh, well, oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, thanks. Yeah. Um, Eli, in the book, tells his teacher that he wants to be a crime journalist because he's interested in the people who commit crimes. And what he says is, I'm interested in how they got to the point they got to. I'm interested in that moment when they decided to be bad instead of good. Seemed to me that's what you were interested in as well, Trent, in this book. Is that right? And that's straight from, absolutely, like that's straight from my real life. It's that idea that at a certain point, well, where will I go? Like there was, it's a fact, like my dad turned up to a parent-teacher night with Mrs Garside in year six and she said, Mr Dalton, your son is on his way to becoming the head of a rebel's motorcycle gang. <laughs> Dead set. And I remember thinking, wow, that's really enticing. Like, that would be really... What an interesting life that would be. I mean, and, and look at me. You imagine how intimidating I'd be as a... Uh, Give me the drugs, buddy. Give me the drugs. And, uh, but some, you know, that how ridiculous. But, but it's really interesting growing up when you've got these role models in front of you who have taken those paths. Like... Slim Halliday, Arthur Slim Halliday, was this convicted criminal, notorious um, prison escapee legend known as the Houdini of Bogo Road, who escaped Bogo, the inescapable Bogo Road prison twice in the 1940s. Then in 1952, kills a taxi driver on the Gold, the Gold Coast in cold blood and gets put away for 30 years. Part of that time, he spends underground in an isolation cell called Black Peter, where they fed him six slices of bread and maybe five cups of water in a high summer in Brisbane. And that guy was my babysitter in the 80s. <laughs> and I know that sounds so ridiculous. And, one, and a dear friend, wasn't he? And, and, a, and a, a great mentor and a giver of advice a, a, to you. So, okay, so then that guy... Oh, that guy... Oh, again, down low, because I don't want my mum getting embarrassed. That's basically it. So down low, like, so... Um, just between you and I and Byron Bay, but the, my mum goes away, right? And 
this is what I'm talking about empathy. It's like and coloured like perspectives. My mum goes away. No one's visiting her, right? My old man's not taking us up because he doesn't want us to see that world. Her family's down in Sydney. The fella she loves most in the world, he's over on the other side of Bogo Road spending 10 years in, in prison. No one's visiting her. Who visits her? Arthur fucking Slim Halliday, you know. <laughs> the notorious cream who on paper everyone says is, you know, worst guy in the world. Mind you, he was possibly highly, high chance he was innocent of that crime. It's all in my mm. book. But um, uh, he comes in and he says, Leone, um, this place has taken your life. It's taken two years out of it. It's taken your dignity. It's taken your children. Um, it's taken your pride. But uh, the thing it will never take is that thing inside you in your heart, which is the love you have for your four boys on the outside. And uh, that's Slim Halliday, you know. So it's empathy, you know. It's like, it's like so me, as, a, as, a, as I grow through my life, do I discount that wisdom that Slim gave my mum and basically saved her life? You know, and it's like, and that's, that's the story of my life. Surrounded by these people who on paper the world would say are the biggest scumbags on earth. But Lyle, the guy Lyle who went away, he's the first guy who gave me love and showed me how to be resilient. And he how was to your stepfather, your mother's father. Sort of a step, yeah, not, yeah, they never married, but like the love of her life. And um, yeah, and so that, that, that is that story of my life. And it's me constantly growing up around kitchen tables where everyone's slamming these bad men and me going, hang on, I love them dearly. They gave me so much. And then, and then what's, so what's good and what's bad? I was just going to end with you with that quote I saw from you, which I thought, I think you've just talked about it, but it did encapsulate what you've done in the book. You've said that one really pressing issue in the book is whether, I really love this, whether good wisdom is still valid when delivered by bad men. Oh, what do you think? I, I, it's been valid for me. You know, mm. it's changed my life. It, mm. it helps me, and it's dangerous though. You know, it's dangerous because it. You know, I, I distinct I, as a journalist, I sat down with this guy who um, Task Force Argos had busted for child pornography, and I remember sitting down with him for four hours, and we we're unpicking how he came to that point of building this child pornography addiction, and you know, it messed with my head. It really messed with my head that story because. I started to care about the guy so much and, and, and this guy is so evil, you know, and it, it's a very dangerous area to tread. I think that's why I wrote a novel about it. Thank you, Trent. That's yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Serious oversharer, like, I'm sorry. And don't even give, don't give me alcohol. Like, whoa. Now, and I've just realised I didn't, haven't even given you the name of Trent's book, I don't think, which is the wonderful name Boy Swallows Universe. Next, I want to move to Matt Haig and ask you some questions. Matt's written a number of books, as we've said. The one we're going to talk about is your most recent novel, How to Stop Time. Now, that is a book about a man called Tom Hazard who suffers from a very unusual condition. Can you tell us what that is and tell us a bit about him and his life? Um, yeah, the condition is called anageria. Basically, anageria means you age um, slower than um, normal people. So, so how old is he in the book? He was born in 1581. So he, in the book, he's 439 years old. But he doesn't look 439 because he's got this condition. So he looks in his 40s. And he's a, um, in contemporary London, he's a teacher. Um, and he's a history teacher, obviously. But, uh, and uh, he, he's, he's lived a, a long and, well, I wouldn't say fulfilling life. He's lived a long and sort of strange 
life. And obviously everyone he's loved, he's lost, and he, he, he's gone through all this. So basically the idea, it was interesting when I came up with the idea of Anageria, because I was talking about it as a condition. And my publisher, who's quite an intelligent man, called Jamie Bing, um, he said, is it real, this condition? <laughs> I it's said, no, convincing. it's not, it's it's not real. It's a very convincing portrayal. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> uh, but there, there is an actual real-life condition called progeria, which is a horrible thing where people age prematurely and they sort of die of old age uh, and organ failure in their 20s and stuff. Um, so, so there is a sort of real science behind it. Like if you reversed it, you know, it... It's not necessarily scientifically possible, but I, ch I chose the age 439 because there are living creatures that live beyond that. You know, they found these sharks near Greenland now that live to a thousand. And then there's a, a, a clam, a clam called a quahoag clam or something. Um, and they, they sort of carbon dated it and it was like 504 years old. I'm fascinated on all that. But what was interesting about the clam is to find out its age, they had to kill the clam. No, so, so that's such a human thing, isn't it? That's <laughs> We're gonna end well done, Clam. Oh, well, sorry about that. You could have had another thousand years there. Well, but, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Matt, Tom, Tom Hazard, that's the name of the main character, belongs to an organisation called the Albatross Society, which is run by a man called Hendrik. Can you tell us a bit about Hendrik and the Albatross Society? Um, yeah, but going back to sort of Trent's thing about um, people being good and bad all at once. Um, yeah, the Albatross Society are outwardly... Well, they, they think of themselves as good guys because they're there to protect the people with anageria um, and to, to keep it a secret. And they've got good, legitimate reasons that they want to keep it a secret because human beings being human beings... Um, where, when it's been found out about the, uh, in the past, there's been sort of witch trials, various sort of superstitions have got involved and people have often ended up dead. And so Hen Hendrik is kind of like um, outwardly this sort of Bond villain, I suppose, who, who, who does anything to protect um, the condition. But in his own mind, he's a, he's a good person. And that, that's what, you know, often, you know, as, as Trent was um, very uh, saying very passionately it's 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 hard isn't it human human nature you know people bad guys and good guys if you see the world as bad guys and good guys that's a very dangerous way to see the world and it leads to a lot of problems that we're seeing in global politics right now and all kinds of things you know there's no no such thing you know everyone's coming from their own different vantage points and i was just doing it in a kind of fantasy novel kind of way matt where did you get the idea um, well, time. I'm obsessed with time. And I think it's come from, well, A, it might be my sort of first of many midlife crisis novels, I think, <laughs> where you're suddenly, you know, you hit 40 and you're suddenly aware that you're, you're not a child and you, you are an aging human being and you're not going to be that clam who lives to 504 <laughs> years old before they test you. Um, and also de depression, you know, hopefully it's not a depressing novel, but I've had depression and I had it quite seriously when I was younger. And time, you, you become obsessed with, with time or with mental illness because A, you've got this thing that's sort of like 24-7 and you, you can't escape it and time sort of stretches. So the three years I was ill, I came out of that and I felt like I was 439 years mm -hmm. old. You know, it's sort of like that mm -hmm. still, that period of three years is still like 50% my life you know mm. still feels so 
so long. So it's that thing about time being relative. And also taking a character who, in a way, has, you know, sometimes like when I struggled in my 20s, um, with sort of finding reasons to stay alive and reasons to keep going. I was thinking, I like, I think fantasy and speculative fiction can sometimes be useful at just putting a microscope under sort of normal everyday human things. So I was thinking this character who's lost everyone, who's lost the love of his life, who's sort of on the run, uh, and give him reasons to sort of keep going at 439 years old. Um, it would help, you know, us sort of people with normal mortal lifespans. The first rule of the society is that you must not fall in love. Does Tom obey that rule? Uh, not very well, but that sort of saves him, you know, as is so often with rules. You, you kind of um, need to break them to um, appreciate life. But um, yes, he, 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 he does follow it for a long time, actually, um, because he, he, he follows it for himself because he fell in love in a big way in the 1600s. And then... Um, this girl, Rose, died of the plague, and he, he didn't, and he was left to sort of grieve for centuries, and so he didn't want to fall in love because it you know, hurt him, and he knew, given his condition, that unless he fell in love with someone who was like him, he'd be the one left for not just years, but decades and centuries. The idea of ageing slowly so that you live for a very long time sounds like a great problem to have, but... Um there's a lovely quote. Tom's experience is, is, it doesn't seem possible for me to exist and not cause pain, my own or other people's. How does he cause pain to other people? Um, well, simply by existing as himself because he, he's got this condition. And so in the past, it happens very early on in the novel, so it's not really a spoiler, but um, in, in the past it's seen as like this strange curse um, and so they believe witchcraft's involved. And so, um, given the nature of the times, uh, the nearest woman was to blame, basically. So his mother was to blame. So, so there's a kind of witch trial that goes on. So he, he's got all this guilt um, of, of being sort of the responsible one. And I think that goes back again to my feelings of guilt and, um, you know, the guilt of having mental illness, because mental illness, unlike physical illness, carries all that sort of moral baggage, you know, where parents blame themselves for it, or that it's in the event you feel like um, you're causing sort of psychological, problem, psychological problems for other people as well. So, um, yeah, he, he, he's, he's a danger to other people. So he's got a kind of selfless reason to keep it a secret as well. It's not just about his own survival. It's about not wanting to hurt people. Tom is a very sympathetic character. <laughs> Um, there's no doubt that the reader feels his pain and it's impossible not to empathise with him. What is the message that you would like readers to take from this book, if there is one? Yeah, I don't know. You know, novels, it's sometimes hard to distill it to a message. I, I suppose all my fiction um, in recent years, when I, when I was really young and I started writing books, they were so bleak. I mean, literally, like, everybody died in the end. And like, <laughs> <laughs> I wrote one book, which you definitely shouldn't read, called The Possession of Mr. Cave. And it was my you third book. You sold it. <laughs> and it, uh, my publishers have just reprinted it. So I really shouldn't say this, because they tell me. <laughs> um, but, yeah, literally, everyone dies. And I thought, like, you know, if you had anything less than a totally bleak ending, you were kind of selling out or something. Uh, <laughs> and then... Um, 
I don't know whether it's those cheesy things like having kids or whatever it is, but I became a different kind of writer. And I think in a weird way, actually, my experience of mental illness made me a more optimistic writer because so much of what of the pessimism that had been in my head had been wrong. So we're sort of conditioned to believe that optimism is kind of fake and happy endings and happy songs, they're the sort of trivial stuff. But actually, optimism for me would have been a more authentic position. So I suppose in my fiction, I'm trying to sort of go to the dark places of life to try and find the sort of solid bit of light that's there. Matt, would you like to finish with us the short reading from your book? Okay. Um, right, this is the moment he, he first goes to the doctor. This is in Victorian England, so he's already of a considerable age. He's 200 and something. And um, he, he, he wants to be understood. He's just got that simple need to be understood. So I thought this related to the empathy thing. And this doctor actually was a real doctor. This scene didn't happen because it's a novel. But there was a, <laughs> a doctor called Dr. Jonathan Hutchinson, who in Victorian London was this sort of skin specialist. And he, he did a lot of great work, like leprosy and things like that. So I create him as a bit of an ignorant character in this book. So I, 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 I'm disrespecting his memory. But if you go to his Wikipedia page, he actually did some, some great things as well as disbelieving um, 260-year-old people. <laughs> So tell me, the doctor said, reminding me of the question that was still in the air, a question I knew had to be answered. How old are you? So I told him. I was born on the 3rd of March in the year 1581. I am 271 years old. I expected him to laugh, but he didn't. He stared at me for a long, long time as snow flurries danced busily outside the window, as if to mirror my swirling mind. His eyes widened and he pinched his lower lip between his fingers, and then he said, well, there, that settles the matter quite conclusively. Now I can set about and give you a diagnosis. I smiled. This was good. A diagnosis was precisely what I was after. Then he said, for proper help, you will need to go to Bethlehem. I remembered passing the place, hearing the dull screams from inside. Bethlehem Hospital, as in Bedlam. The very same. But that's a place for lunatics. It is an asylum, yes. It will give you the help you need. Now, please, I have more appointments today. He nodded to the door. But please, I recommend you visit Bethlehem. It will help with your delusions. The most fashionable philosopher at this time was the German, Arthur Schopenhauer, who was still just about alive. I had been reading a lot of him, which was probably inadvisable. Reading Schopenhauer when you felt melancholy was like taking off your clothes when you felt cold. But a line of his came back to me. Every man takes the limits of his own field of vision for the limits of the world. I had thought, in coming to Dr. Hutchinson, I was coming to the man with the broadest field of scientific vision, the one most likely to understand my condition. And having this belief slip away felt like a kind of grief, the death of hope itself. I was beyond every field of vision. I was a kind of invisible man. Thank you. Elise, let's talk now about your beautiful book, The Madonna of the Mountains. And one thing I just can't resist saying, this book has the most magnificent cover and it was designed by Liberty of London, especially oh, for Elise. Um, Elise, would you like to start by telling us what your book's about? 
Sure. It's um, the story of Maria Vittoria, a very ordinary woman who is born at the end of the 19th century. So when the book starts, 1923, she's 25, which is pretty old, and she's really worried about not being married. But this is not a book about finding a husband. The husband is found in the first chapter by her father. Uh, the issue is quite a serious one. The First World War has just happened, and most of the men are either dead or mutilated or not present. So it's a pretty tough time, and she's a peasant woman, and she grows up in a remote mountain community, a hamlet, where girls are not valued as boys are, and it's a very patriarchal society, and she has to um, be married in order to find value and to be a mother and to produce children. So the husband is found. She gets married. Um, they move down to the plains from this remote mountain hamlet. They set up a shop, and life uh, proceeds, uh, as you hope it would. And their income is modest, and they do quite well. But of course, what I haven't mentioned is fascism. And Mussolini comes to power in 1922, the year before the novel starts. So this book does very much span the period of fascism in Italy, and that um, takes its course. And then, of course, you know the dates of the Second World War. So this little uh, family shop in the plains in the Veneto region of Italy then is um, at the centre of her world, but also uh, the Second World War comes to them. And it's what you do in order to survive the Second World War in order to survive um, occupation, first fascism, then Nazi fascism, and then plain old Nazism. And the book ends, I think, hopefully, without being implausibly redemptive. It comes to 1950, so the post-war era with um, the period of reconstruction and emigration to Australia. <laughs> so that's the, the span of the book. But I've just told you the ending. That's wrong. No, you I've haven't. Just, I've just broken all the rules. No, anyway. There's a lot that you haven't told us. So you, Maria does marry Achille, the man mm -hmm. that her father finds for her. And if you, as you've said, they buy a grocery store. What I really loved about your book was the depth of your research and how you very much did put us in the shoes of these people, and in particular in Maria's shoes, and gave us a real sense of what it must have been like to run a business in Italy mm. under Mussolini's fascist regime during mm. World War II. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of that? You do it very strongly in your book, but can you just give us a bit of a sense of what it must have been like to run a small business during that period? Well, it's, you know, and yeah, there's so much to say about this. I found it so interesting. I'm not a historian. I did so, so, so much research, but... The really difficult part of the research was finding out what it was like to be an ordinary person. It's very easy to find out about political leaders, generals. I know this is a cliche to say this, but um, if you read about women's history, it's usually Mussolini's lover or an aristocrat or a famous person or a resistance fighter hero. And of course, most women and most people are not heroes or political leaders or generals or strike organizers. They're you know muddling along and trying to live and keep their children fed and have a, have a life. So that research was really difficult, but because it was difficult, of course, I was excited by it. It was a bit like a field of fresh snow, untrodden. It really felt like you know, treasure to, to find. Um, a lot of the research I did was you know, lots of visits to Italy. I'm from Italian family. My family is a family of, of migrants. Um, so there were lots of stories that I grew up with. You know, I belonged here, I belonged there, born in Melbourne, but I was Italian. So lots and lots and lots of... Um, stories there, lots of memories. And when I went to Italy and uh, 
was known as the writer, the cousin who was the writer. I'd be introduced to people left, right, and center. I'd go to a sagra celebrating a porcino or a, the local pea, and you'd be surrounded by all these people having dinner and wine under the, you know, the vines. And suddenly some really, really elderly person would be sat next to me and told, she's the writer. And of course, I'd be told these wonderful, wonderful stories from a time that is now gone, um, a landscape that is not quite gone, but pretty much gone, ways of life, uh, customs, rituals, religious rituals, biodynamic farming and, and growing before the word biodynamic you know, was, was applied to the process, um, a life where there was no rubbish, literally no rubbish. No one needed to collect the rubbish because you didn't make rubbish, because absolutely everything you made and did and ate, everything was recycled, reused, fed to the pigs, then you ate the pigs, and then, you know, absolutely everything was, um, you know, eco before the word eco kind of crept in. And then, of course, on my own trips there, I, I had lots of wonderful experiences, just, I suppose, as a tourist, but also as a, a foreign local person. So I, I was lucky enough to go on mountain hikes um, up into Pazupio and to the mountains where the, um, the tunnels were carved into the mountains during the First World War, you know, against the Austrian invasion. And this was a feat of engineering, you know, completed in a matter of months. And the, the tunnels literally corkscrew up into cones and up the most incredible, extraordinary paths. And it's the most beautiful hike. I did this at midnight by the light of the full moon, absolutely stunning, in the company of cousins and a priest called Don Giovanni, <laughs> who turned out to be a lover of plants. So that was lucky for me because, of course, you know, he was naming all sorts of little creepers and bushes and plants and weeds and, you know, um, getting that sort of insight into, into nature, which I'm quite obsessed about. And there's a lot of that in the book as well. I would have taken notes, except that the, you know, path had no fences, no health and safety. And the precipitous um, incline, you know, to your left or to your right would have meant that taking notes was a bit of a perilous exercise. So all sorts of rich experiences like that, all of that has fed into the book. Yeah. Elisa, I won't say what it is, but in desperation in this book, Maria does something that she's not proud of, which haunts her for the rest of the book and presumably for the rest of her life. Why does she do what she does? How can I answer that without telling them what she does? <laughs> do you um, interesting. Shall I, give, shall I give a spoiler alert? Do you want to know? No. <laughs> All right. Why, do, why don't we move on then? No, the, um, you know, what, I'll know. Do, what I'll do is I'll, I'll answer that by saying what I, I found really interesting about writing this. And this is empathy again, to, to bring it back to that specific subject. It's very easy as a contemporary person, a feminist, a person who's not religious, with the benefits of the education that I've had, to impose my worldview onto a character of another time. And of course, that's the last thing I wanted to do. So um, I wanted Maria Vittoria really to be her and of her time, of her place. She's very religious. She's very um, ethical. Her moral guidance is, is from the church, from the, the, the one book she possesses, The Christian Bride, which is full of all sorts of, you know, to me, bizarre instructions like, you know, applying mortifications to the flesh to remind yourself of pain and suffering and sin. Um, her, her life is, you know, cons conscribed in this way. Um, so when fate and war and the difficulties of um, the situation, the general political situation, which comes to your door, uh, she... she to overcome that or to put that to one side, it's a very, 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 very difficult um, choice for her. And I think that's what's 
really interesting in fiction is when a character that you're interested in and engaged in actually is put to the test, you know, to their, their limits. What is the furthest that that character will go on, on behalf of, say, someone else or survival or, um, you know, how, how are they tested to their utmost? Elise, you said something, and I think this is this is what you've just been talking about, but I, I saw you said at one stage that you're interested in the muckiness of morality. Mm. What did you mean by that? It's a word I probably overuse, and perhaps it doesn't sound right, but to me it is. Muckiness that, or morality? No, muckiness, muckiness. <laughs> I think we all vaguely know what we mean by morality, but I think muckiness, and I, I do actually you know, hang on to that word because I think it is... I think so often people say, oh, if I were alive in the Second World War, I would have done X and Y and Z. Or I would have... I think, well, actually, if, if the row of trees in the street near where you live is, is, um, has been turned into a line of gallows with local people, including 15-year-old children and women and men um, who are not fighters and not generals and not politicians, you know, so they don't even have that excuse. Um, and that's for one dead Nazi you know, maybe you wouldn't quite risk life and limb. Maybe you wouldn't go and break the law too easily. And breaking the law means um, having pigeons because they might be a form of communication. It might be talking to an American or an ally. It might be talking to an Italian who is not in the army, therefore is possibly an escapee, a prisoner of war, a deserter, a partisan just talking to those, and there are posters everywhere, German propaganda everywhere, posters telling you one Italian, sorry, one German equals 10 Italians. Um, And all of these prohibitions are listed in very, very clear local language so that absolutely everyone can understand that. When you're faced with that fear and that punishment, that institutional violence, I'm not sure what you would do and where your morals and your ethics do and don't go. And I think... That's the really interesting side of humanity, actually, rather than these kind of pure, evil, good, bad guys, good guys. I think that's a really simplistic view of history, and I think that's one I really specifically wanted to avoid in this book. Elise, could you um, finish by reading an extract for us? Of course, yeah. So this is a a tiny little bit. um, It's 1936, so that's year 14 of the fascist era, And Maria Vittoria, having moved to the plains, is now going back to the mountains. And she's um, going back for a funeral. And she's, despite the years of autarky, which is, um, you know, the period of sanctions where, you know, basically everything is is pretty limited. She's she's doing quite well with the shop and she wants to make a good impression. But um, something happens. Uh, A person appears after this church service. And it's a person who haunted her from her childhood. And she's basically a homeless, stateless wild woman. She thinks of her as a mad woman. Everyone refers to her as the mad woman, but I think she's much more interesting than that. Are you a devil with those horns? Someone shouts out, laughing. Or a chimney sweep? Another asks. Look at her black face. But Delphina doesn't answer. She starts singing Little Black Face, the marching song from Abyssinia about the pretty slave among the slaves. Her voice is cracked and out of tune. Vacetta nera, bella piscina. Some people sing along. They know the words. One fellow starts to move his arms about as if he's conducting an invisible orchestra. But Delfina gets the words mixed up and some people lose their place. Soon they're laughing and telling her off. Others are grumbling and cursing. One man calls out that tomorrow's the start of Lent. 
and it's time for charity, not fascism. The crowd starts to break up and move down the steps. The madwoman plucks out her horns. They're just sticks stuck in her matted hair. She throws them high into the air. She hops from one foot to the other in a dance. The people stand back. Their laughter puffs into steam like a cloud. The sticks clatter to the ground. Delphina starts making her way up to the church. She climbs three steps at a time. She's used to mountains. Her legs are rangy like an alpine goat's. The crowd backs away. Maria can smell her now. She remembers it in her nose. It is the stench of hell. And here is Delfina standing in front of them, too near. Arsenio looks scared enough to cry, but instead he kicks at the hag and he misses. Cecilio tries to copy him and falls over. The children titter. Delfina spits. She points at each child. Boy, girl, boy, boy. One, two, three, four. Laugh, 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 laugh. Dark, 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 dark. She sucks in a breath. Live dangerously. She shouts, even though they're close enough to hear. The words are familiar. More words from Mussolini. Wow. What I'd like you to do is to join with me in thanking these three fabulous writers. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2018. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.